Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, try to, I say try, to pick up where we left off last week. But I, I want to back up a little bit. I mentioned last week how this is a little bit outside the, outside the box approach to a few things. I'll explain a little bit my motivation behind it and, and then come back on some of, the, um, some of the context of the things we've been sharing. We've been talking about, last week we started discussing the pursuit of perfection. And kind of historically where, where we fit in with that and some of the, uh, how it impacted not only Christianity but the, the fundamentalist movement as well. And I want to just give a little bit of backdrop. We talked a little bit about this last night uh, with uh, Tim and, and uh, Kevin. And I want, to give, I want to give just a little bit of background to what you might have heard and, or might you hear on the subject and just give a little bit of, of a broad perspective on it. Here, the, the backdrop to some of these questions go back to what some call the, the, the Keswick movement. And this is a little bit of history. We did a little bit of history last week as well with John and Charles Wesley. We'll do a little bit of that today and come back and try to wrap all that up. I'm, I'm hesitant to, to, to use labels and try to characterize. The reason why I did not mention some of this last week is I'm hesitant to try to, to use labels. Once you use labels, people kind of, the, to me, labels are kind of like this black hole. Everybody throws something in it and it kind of disappears. You know, we, we say that about liberalism, everything kind of just falls in that black hole. And even in the discussion between, you know, Calvinism and Armenianism, you know, oh, that's Armenians. And everything is kind of thrown in this, on this label. And I don't really feel, uh, that's not really the, my approach to the issue. My interest in this study, per se, is to examine the, the issue of Christian perfection, the pursuit of holiness, the process of sanctification, how to live victoriously, uh, and how to be encouraged by those truths. I think the, the, the Word of God is designed in such a way to, to encourage us in this, not with always a sense of, man, I'm never going to achieve or attain this, this perfection. So how, how to address those questions um, to, to um, understand where we're at spiritually. I think anybody who desires to walk in truth lives with this constant sense of falling short, this constant sense of, well, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be, I'm not where I should be. And so we're trying to, how do we spiritually respond to that? Because certainly the Lord has given us provision for that, and certainly there's instruction for that. And certainly the Word of God addresses those issues of how to live a, sanct- a sanctified life. So some of the issues that we find today, that I, I, I was talking to Tim last night about, Tim will share about it. It's kind of like I've backed up into the question. I mean, I've, I've experienced Christianity in a certain way. I've experienced these questions about uh, what it means to walk in truth, what it means to pursue holiness, what it means to pursue sanctification. And, and walking back into history, we're just reminded of how history influences what we believe today in our practices. So it's not a matter of rejecting all history. It's not a matter of labeling everything right or wrong. It's not a matter of saying, well, that's this or that's that. It's us today understanding maybe what shaped our, our, our mindset on these issues, what brought us to this point. Then how do we walk our Christian walk in a way that, that, is, that is healthy and I believe uh, victoriously as well. So I didn't want to address it, but I think maybe it would be healthy just to provide a little bit of backdrop to what it's called the, the Keswick movement. There's one label that's often associated with the pursuit of, of perfection it originated with John and Charles Wesley, and it moved into the Keswick movement. And so I just want to give the, – here's the three tenets of their beliefs today. They uh, – Keswick movement is called – is also called – sometimes you'll hear it called the higher life movement. So the Keswick movement, the higher life movement kind of carry the same label. 
And it's a theological movement that originated in England in the 19th century, so in the 1800s, following really a lot of the influence from John Charles Wesley that we talked about last week. So I didn't come back on the Keswick movement last week, but a lot of influence from John and Charles Wesley in this regard. So today, it's, it's still today a, a large parachurch organization. That's, they, they're there to support churches, to, and here's their three tenets. Here's their three beliefs. One is hearing God's word. If you go to the website, you'll see these listed this way. First is hearing God's word. So the Keswick Ministries is committed to preach and teach God's word in a way which is faithful to Scripture, relevant to Christians of all ages, backgrounds, etc. Two, becoming like God's son. From its earliest days, the Keswick movement has encouraged Christians to live godly lives in the power of the Spirit, to grow in Christ-likeness, and to live under his lordship in every area of life. And thirdly, serving, serving God's mission. So the authentic response to God's word is obedience to his mission. And the inevitable result is Christ-likeness. In other words, when you're obedient to God's word, inevitably you're going to be Christ-like in sacrificial service. And the Keswick ministry seeks to encourage committed discipleship, family life, work society, etc. So that you go through this. This is their, their tenets. This is what they believe. If you look through their history, there's uh, not the Keswick movement. They're, they're, they have a yearly – they have an annual convention. They had one back, I think, July 2020. I think it's held in it's held in England anyway. It's, it's a UK uh, based ministry, but a lot of missionaries like Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Billy Graham at one point they're all they were all part of being participant in these movements. Again, it's not to throw labels around. He, you know, oh that makes him a bad person because he went to this movement or this convention. It just kind of gives an idea that it's not a small thing, and they carry a lot of uh, a lot of history with them as well. So. Most of what they have today, they'll work back and they'll go back to their history and go back to the teachings of John Wesley. I'm just catching up a little bit from last week. Uh, John and, and Charles Wesley, two Methodist theologians as well, Fletcher, Adam Clark, so other 18th century, 19th century theologians, Methodist theologians are the founding work for, for this movement. And essentially... What the Keswick theology will teach is that the Christian life consists of two major turning points. I mean, you're looking for two major turning points. They'll also call them crisis points where you go through a life crisis. Well, the first one, of course, life crisis is it's not marriage. That's life crisis of another kind. But justification and uh, salvation. So, the, the, you know, you're justified by faith. Salvation, that's your first life crisis. The second life crisis that you're searching for is sanctification. So you have justification and sanctification as two major events that you're pursuing, <clears throat> that you desire, that you would want uh, in your life. So they both happen at different times in life of a believer. Salvation, one must have, after salvation, one must have another encounter with the Spirit. Otherwise, he or she would not progress into holiness and to deeper things of God. So you see that the, the foundational truth is this. You're, you're searching two major Crisis in your life, two uh, major turning points. One, salvation. Two, the sanctification. One is an encounter with, with Christ. Two is an encounter with the Spirit. And you can't progress into a deeper walk until you have that second experience. Well, you're going to see how all this, of course, is going to historically, it's all going to feed into what? It's going to feed into uh, Finney's revival and uh, revival meeting. It's going to feed into the Great Awakening. It's going to feed into all this. Because it's a pursuit of holiness, and this, this philosophy, this theology, kind of began to influence those things which were to come in this, in this time. So, of course, and we inherited, fundamentalists inherited a lot of these Great Awakenings, revival, revivalism as well. So, 
we could see traces of some of this perception. Now, it doesn't mean that anyone who says, well, you know, you need to really pray for the, a deeper relationship with Christ. Oh, he's, oh, he's a Keswick theology. I mean, you know, that's not the intent. The intent is understanding what started it and where they went. So this second encounter that they're promoting in their theology is what they call entire sanctification. We mentioned last week they call it second blessing. <clears throat> second blessing. They call it the second touch. Um, and this emphasis is on a second post-salvation experience. Corresponds as well with the Pentecostal idea of baptism by the Spirit. So it's also going to feed the Pentecostal movement, which came a little bit later, <clears throat> with a search for a baptism of the Spirit. So now you have salvation. Anybody who's been in ministry for any length of time, you run into charismatics, you know, they're searching for that second spiritual experience, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, and uh, that's part of the, the foundation theology that, that led to this pursuit of sinless perfection. And in doing so, this second spiritual experience that they were to, to uh, search for. So, the good side of things, I would say, that the, the healthy part is what? Well, the healthy part, it does originate, and I think I'll, I'll cover this briefly in some of those today. It, it did originate with a desire to pursue holiness. It's a desire to, for a deeper walk with God. It's a desire for, but in doing so, they've, they've altered some of the theology that's important, and it warps our understanding of sanctification, and it creates some negative side effects that we'll, we'll address. So, very briefly, all that to say is that if you read history, you'll see how all that kind of funnels into where we're at today, and it impacts our perception of where perfectionism lies where you, you know, you're praying for uh, a different, separate spiritual experience, and also accepting people that were that are so accepting people that are Christian, saved, but they're only justified; they haven't been sanctified, and believing that, that there's middle ground where you can be. You're during that middle ground period, and so uh, there are many times when when we were witnessing to a charismatic person, they can have a legitimate sense of salvation. Meaning a legitimate understanding of, of, of Christ's work on the cross. But I can't tell you how many people we counseled who were grieving over the fact that they had not yet received the Spirit. They were still waiting for another experience. And so they were rejected by their churches if they did not, usually it had to do around tongues. So if they did not experience the speaking in tongues, they had not received a second blessing. They're still searching for the second blessing. If they had gotten sick and were not healed, they had not, they had missed a second blessing. They had missed baptism in the Spirit. And they were shunned by. The churches, or you know, even on their own spiritual walk, they struggled. Because imagine if you're told that you're to expect the second blessing, the second experience, and you're not receiving it, when well, you live in this defeatist mind, thinking I'm missing something here, We're, and and so you're searching another experience. So we witnessed that over and over and over. Not an exceptional, I mean, not like an exception, but really something that was over and over in uh, those involved in certain facets of the Pentecostal movement. So. First, I want to say there's, a, there's an honorable pursuit. And I, I'm, I'm restructuring some of the notes and catching up today, but there's an honorable pursuit, meaning we looked last week at the transformation that takes place at salvation. You know, we have a desire for what? We know in Christ, some of the verses here from last week, that first we're, we're, new, we're a new creature. We're old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Then from there, we're told to walk worthy of the calling in which we're called. So we're, we strive to walk worthy of the calling that's been given to us. Now that we're called, that we're called to walk in a way worthy, we're told what? First Corinthians 10, we're told well, then no, no temptation is going to come to you that's not 
common to man, but you'll be given a way to escape. So we're a new creature. We're told to walk it according to the call that's been given to us, walk in godliness. We're told that we're going to have a way to escape this temptation. Uh, and then we're told in, first, in, in Second Peter that uh, you know, we're going to be given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So we're going to be equipped. We're going to be given the tools for all things to walk in godliness and truth. And then we're told in 1 Peter 1, be holy for I am holy. So you take those, you take those principles and you, you walk away with what these men walked away with. Wow, I mean, we, you know, we're called to be holy. So they, they, from there, they deviated from some of the <clears throat> intent and some of the understanding of sanctification. Something that when the word describes it as a completed event... They saw it as a completed event when in reality we're talking about something that's an ongoing that will be completed at the return of Christ when we see him. They saw it as something that should be achieved here. And you can understand the, um, some of the problems that that caused. So there's honorable men that were part of this. I don't, I, you know, I'm not, these are not men that I would consider heretical. They had a pursuit of holiness, pursuit of perfection, but... We're going to talk about some of the deviations that came that came from that. So, just briefly, we mentioned the last week: John, Char- John, and Charles Wesley, formerly a Wesleyan and a Methodist. Peter Bowler, a Moravian, uh, teaching that as God sanctified believers, they experience full restoration in the divine image and complete freedom from evil. Uh, I put First John three just as a reminder that that complete freedom will will be accomplished and fulfilled in Christ at His return, not not today. So. It's always interesting, you know, whenever we're reminded that when God speaks to us, He always speaks to us in completed, in completed terms. Meaning, am I getting too close to the speaker here? The TV? Maybe. All right, I gotta have a little tape in my box right here, and I, gotta, I get outside my box. It's better when I got shield. You got a shield? <laughs> yeah, we might, we might have to put our, our shield up here too. I don't know. Um. God, God gives us a perspective. It's like when we talked about our, our own sanctification being completed. In, 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 in the view of Christ, all these things are completed. We're experiencing them. We're living them. And we're walking through something that Christ sees as already completed. But the third point says he started out with John and Charles Wesley. And it turned into Charles, into John versus Charles because they disagreed on what sin is perfection is. And I think it's interesting because where that will lead ultimately is the I think I think that John Wesley's prediction on this actually was fulfilled, meaning John opposed Charles because John was saying sinless perfection only applies to those willful acts of disobedience. I mean, you know you're sinning and you're doing it in a way, so that's that's where perfection is applied. And Charles is saying no, it should be any any sin, willful sin, and you know, uh, ignorantly sinning. Uh, willful sinning covers everything. And then Charles pushed back. I mean, John pushed back on that by saying that he said to continue to promote eradication of sin, even from involuntary transgressions, then it would be impossible for anyone to uphold his practice. Thus, in his words, driving the teaching out of the world. So what I mean by that is that John was telling Charles, if you teach that sin is perfection, from every sin, from voluntary and involuntary sin, is possible. You're actually going to drive the pursuit of holiness out of the world because you're 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 describing something that's going to be impossible for anybody to fulfill. And I wonder if that hasn't 
And this is just a little bit of a... He says to sit... Well, he says something else. He says to set perfection so high is effectually to renounce it. Don't expect men to be without spot or blemish. So I wonder if, if part of what we're experiencing today is actual fulfillment of that saying from John because in reality people do what? Well, in other words, if I can't... If I can't really live up to perfection, then why try? So there's a certain sense of fatalism that falls into place. There's a sense of, I mean, if this is what God expects of me, and there's no way I'm ever going to measure up to that, and the response is not, so the response is not daily sanctification, confession, forgiveness, uh, and, and living day by day, like Paul says in, to the Corinthians, die yourself daily. With the understanding of what this means and, and the grace and the beauty of forgiveness in this and the beauty of sanctification and actually embracing that is actually part of it. As, it's not just it's not lamenting that we're not perfect. It's embracing the process of sanctification and understand what God meant by that. But if if John is to be correct, but what has happened is that we created a, a generation of one nominal believers who actually. Fell, know that they fall short and they'll never measure up. And when you have a child, even in your own family, who will never measure up to your expectations, what happens? They stop trying. They rebel. They bitterness, anger, uh, rebellion. All these things are an outflow of what of expectations that are unreasonable that can never be met. So that is such a classic. Um, problem in in families where you have you know high demand and you see this sometimes and well you, you see this in, in in families with this kind of expectation. Well, I think spiritually that has played out in, in many ways where we set out we set out to have a Christianity that is sanctification was not explained in a healthy way to where someone can can walk through that and live through that. So that's kind of where we. We work up to this, and then I put down for today, small inconsistencies led to significant deviations, and even heresy. So that, that you know, it reminds me of sometimes as parents, we want our kids to do well, so we, we go a little bit further than, you know, we, first of all, either we couch things spiritually, and I try to be very careful at Temple Lake Christian School not to couch things spiritually. In other words, here's what we're asking of you, and I don't try to put a spiritual stamp on everything I do. Because some things I do because it's, it's just good practice within school. It's not because it's a spiritual mandate or a spiritual standard. Otherwise, you keep inundated with these spiritual standards that they walk away with. This is just ridiculous. There's no way we're going to live this way and, and walk out from Christianity, run from Christianity. So uh, what, what started out, and some, I heard someone say this once about, about music in church. And, you know, whenever we first introduced the jungle drums, you know, uh, in church. Someone said, well, I wish the Bible had been more clear about it. So that, you know, we could, we could eat. Well, but just by saying that, what happens is that there's a certain generation that to err on the side of safety, it's kind of the reasoning, right? To err on the side of safety does not do these things that have the, any appearance of evil. Well, by couching things that way, what you've, what you've really done is You've gone many times beyond what the text would mandate, and you do that to try to what? To preserve, to protect, to guard. But actually, the reality is that the results are often counterproductive, and they actually push us in the other direction. And I put down 
that um, a warning that to go be beyond the text, to go beyond the text, even for seemingly honorable reasons, leads people away from the text. In other words, if you, if you go beyond the text and you try to control your family, we try to control people, we try to control believers, and here, John and Charles are doing what? They're, I saw the same discussion when people talk, the same mentality when people talk about losing your salvation. I talked to different young men who were espousing the idea you could lose your salvation. You know the primary drive for holding that theology is not really scriptural? The primary drive for that theology is what? What they're looking around in church, what are they seeing? I mean, seeing Christians who are living their lives like, like there is no salvation. Like they're, they're living their lives like the world. So they, they, they want to push this idea where you can lose your salvation. Beware. Well, what they're really trying to do is trying to bring that person back to sanctification and holiness. But they're going around about it in an in a unbiblical and ultimately unhealthy way. And this pursuit of perfection might have a good motive behind it, which means encourage people to do the right thing, make the right decisions. God's giving you the power. But then beyond that, what you're promoting, though, is you're going beyond the text. And in doing that, you're leading people actually away from the text. So I do want to ask, is a lot of this or some of this or part of this um, – all the exterior, a lot of the exterior things, because I certainly grew up in a church that was beautifully <clears throat> preaching expository and all the rest, and I learned a lot. But at the same time, it was all the do's and don'ts of what people know Baptists are known for, the do's and don'ts. And if you're a good Christian, you have the higher calling. That's <laughs> always the higher I calling. You look a certain way, never cut your hair if you're a woman. You know, I was on a plane once witnessing to a man, and he asked me, what I, I said, are the Baptists at one point? He said, oh, y'all the ones who believe you can't smoke. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm older than maybe a lot of these people in here, but that's how I grew up, certainly. I think... Two years older, that's, that's how I grew up. The, 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 it's a different kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so I do see... And I'll be honest, growing up that way, when you see the swing of churches where songs sound like Jesus is your boyfriend... And what they're wearing in church. I mean, I, I, I go back and forth in my mind. I don't know. I have the same issue with a, with a, with a neighbor. <laughs> I don't know where. He, he was German. But he said, oh, I don't know if it was about the Baptist. But he said something about, oh, you guys don't believe in drinking. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's so amazing. Here, I don't even have a chance to witness to him yet. <laughs> I got overcome already his perception of the do's and don'ts that we create in Christianity are a supplement to real sanctification. In other words, we, we've created a list of do's and don'ts because as, as a process of a makeshift sanctification process, that, of course, when, it, when a child is young, he needs, those, he needs those rigid guidelines. It's the fast track to sanctification. The fast track to sanctification. <laughs> so, and in case you're not clear about them and you're confused about them, we're going to make sure you're clear about them. So, um, of course, that, that well, leads... Tell us about the church. We went over. They had dresses, right, for ladies to put on in the closet when they entered church. <laughs> I mean, here. It's like raps. I don't know. Just that he went to a church like that at one point in Tennessee. Oh yeah. Yeah, a church. We had a closet with skirts and. I think I think a lot of that too stems from even just our, our human nature of just there is a, a sense of craving to you know narrow a narrow sure. path of, of guidance. I mean, the children are the same way. They they crave structure and rules and. Um, that's where they do really well. And I know when I became a believer, um, you know, I spent 
for 17 years of my life not really knowing anything about faith. And then when I started kind of exploring things, I had this sense of I need to find something that tells me what to do. Mm. Of I need right. to have something that gives me a list of this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. Um, and so I think, and I think that probably is part of it too. But yeah, then it goes so far where you lose that sense. Well, you begin to you begin to rely, right? You begin to rely on, on on guidelines. And again, when you're when your kids are young, they're not in the place to, to, to process this. So you give them guidelines that as they grow through these, they you are able obviously to explain to them why we do what we do. Make sure that I make sure with my kids that I distinguish between I don't I don't try to put a spiritual stamp in everything I ask them to do. I try to define and give them wisdom of making decisions. But my kids are older now, so they. They let me know they make their own decisions, you know. Uh, but it's a def- a de- definitely a different ball game. But we we we've processed this in such a way that it's, that it really is counterproductive to to, to sanctification as, as it was designed to be. And instead, we hide behind certain appearances. And like it was said, it's a it's a shortcut to to spirituality. So what happens is that every so often, whenever you you constantly violated all these rules, and you go back and you press the reset button, and you answer an altar call, and you pray, Lord, I'm going to rededicate, recommit, and I'm going to try again. And you go back and you try again, and you know, six months later, you think, man, I messed up again. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go re- reboot again, you know, and uh, re- research for I'm, I'm mess, I don't, I don't feel it. And you go back instead of a daily, the sanctification process, which is a daily process of dying to self and, and putting off and putting on, and what that looks like, uh, and really. I'm, I'm going to use the term last chapter as, as embracing that. I mean, there's the beauty of sanctification that's part of, of course, the, the ultimate hope of being, being like Christ. So a few deviations. One, salvation and sanctification were two separate spiritual ex- experiences. What happened at salvation somehow is not sufficient, and we are to search for a secondary experience to complement the first. The first one saves. The second one makes one makes a, someone a committed believer. So we have. So imagine what that looks like, even in in evangelism meetings. If your if your perception is the salvation experience in and of itself is not sufficient to make you a, a, you a disciple, that's just the, that's just getting you into the door. We went to a day um, night. Matter of fact, went to Memphis, Tennessee, on a missions trip from this church with uh, with you, Tim White, and. We're going evangelistic meetings. You know, we're out there in, in, in rough areas uh, of Memphis, showing outdoor movies. These, you know, you're going to hell movies with fire. And there's one you may have seen. This guy's on the scooter, beginning the scene of the movie, and he's in an accident. And his head goes rolling down the road. You know, because he, he got decapitated. And I mean, th- you know, that kind of. Of course, at the end, he wants to avoid that. You know, anyway. And then, so the evangelist. And he's a, he, honestly, he's a, he's a good man, loves the Lord, wants to see people know the Lord, okay? So I'm not, I'm not mocking him. I'm saying that after that, my, our frustration was, okay, so now we have all these people coming forward who just made this, repeated this prayer. And we talked to him about that difficulty afterwards. And he says, well, listen, my job is to get him in the door, you, and you take care of the rest. As if somehow there's, there's two separate steps. I did the first step. That's get them to accept Christ. Now, you, you take care of the second step and, and, to, and to lead them to spiritual maturity and show them where to go to church and, and, and work through the process. Well, that's, I think it's just it's an unhealthy approach. What's, what's going to happen? They're, they're going to raise their hand at the next, next year when they come back. And there's just this, compete, this com, com, um, 
continual uh, roller coaster of emotion. So it's just um, such we've done such a disservice. This also impacts how we tolerate or accept sinful behavior from a professing believer. In other words, oh, if someone's living a if someone's living in sin as a believer, well, you know, he, he needs to re recommit, and we we accept. It's more acceptable that believers can live uh, in this state of imperfection because, after all, they they're, they're not there yet. they're not mature yet, you know. So they're, they're we hope they come back. Or we, so we have this this gray area that we've accepted as, as opposed to, you know, if someone confess Christ. We obviously search and desire for uh, a a change that is the gospel impacts through in and throughout. It, it limits the perceived impact of the gospel as if the gospel has the power to save but not the power to live by I mean it limits the gospel to, to a, a, a prayer to a, 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 a academic knowledge and understanding of truth it limits the gospel to a very narrow facet of the gospel it's supposed to be life transforming it's supposed to be revolutionary it's supposed to, change, it's supposed to turn your life upside down it's supposed to bring you to your knees it wasn't just intended to be this uh, accepting a truth and somehow afterwards decide if it's really worth living living by. So I put down uh, creates shortcuts to real transformation. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, this perception of this uh, these inconsistencies create the sense that there's um, you can have real transformation by seeking a second experience or another experience as opposed to the daily sanctification process. The, the cleansing of the word that's part of part of our walk uh, altar theology is part of that search for rededication at the expense of confession and repentance so you know when you live in it when you have something in your life that needs to be confessed you confess it uh, Mark Hager uses this expression a lot he says you know you, you use biblical terms to address biblical needs and if you had the right biblical term on the front end then you had the right biblical answer on the back end but we talk about rededication a recommitment, giving your heart to the Lord, uh, then you don't have a, a, a biblical link to it because you're using terms that you've created over here. Whereas you talk about confessing sin and, and repenting of it, then you have a biblical process and a biblical answer to to, to that need. It's uh, the Pentecostal movement fed from that. I mentioned that earlier in our testimony. Search for spirit baptism after salvation. So the Pentecostal movement is full-fledged have adopted that. And the last point I put down is that it's created this, this, this host of nominal Christians, false converts and churches full of uh, chaff and, 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 and wheat, meaning you have churches now that are full of people that are, we have believers and we have disciples. We have committed believers and we have uncommitted believers. We have people here who they profess Christ and they, they come on Sunday, but they don't really live Christ throughout the week. And it's mixed with people who really have been transformed. So you have this this undesirable mixture and Jane and I were talking yesterday about you know churches you know it's better to have smaller churches than this movement of large churches you know where in reality in smaller churches you have accountability you have life on life you have a different approach to Christianity that, that gets lost in in, in larger churches and, and Tim Lake would be considered in one of those larger churches scenarios but I, I talked to many people at school about Going to church, and it's amazing to me how many times. Oh yeah, we don't. Oh no, we don't go there anymore. Oh, we go here now. Oh yeah, we went to Bedrock for a while. You still go? Oh, you go to Bedrock? Right? Oh, no, no, we go to Waymaker now. Oh, Waymaker. Oh, let's go. They go Waymaker. Oh no, we don't go to Waymaker. We go to Blue Ridge now. Oh, Blue Ridge. And you just, I get no idea of keeping track. So every year they resubmit where they go to church. 
Because they, there's just, it's, a, it's an understanding, there's nothing wrong with just shifting sand and just kind of moving around because there's no accountability, there's no process of life on life where there's a sanctifying process in that as well, where the iron does sharp iron. So, well, that's part of the uh, deviations that came from maybe just a, maybe a sincere desire to walk in truth. And I walk, into, I, I walk here on the assumption that everyone of us here have a sincere desire for, for truth, have a sincere desire for walking in holiness, walking for, for perfection. And when we sin, we're grieved. When we sin, we don't say, well, that's just part of the, you know, oh, man, I just missed the mark, and Lord, I'm going to recommit, whatever. No, we, we, we grieve over our sin, and we confess it before the Lord, and we, we move forward in, in truth. So we're going to address some of that secondary aspect as well, but just some of the deviations there. I put down, the way I do my notes, by the way, is I don't, the reason why it's in red is that the, I've seen C and one and number two, so number two is, is just the interesting response. John MacArthur's book in 1988 was a response to easy believism, and his, his book on Lordship Salvation did kick the it created a divide in the fundamental world over, you know, what does it mean to be a believer? Does it have to be Lord of your life? And people actually push back strongly on the notion that uh, he was Lord and Savior, and they distinguish those two things. And, it, and it, it's amazing how we just inherited that, the idea that he could be your Savior, but the fact that he's your Lord is a second process, a second experience that some people are not there yet. Or not, you know, it's, not, it's a separate part of our salvation experience. I mentioned some of the responses to that. Um, the, the Ryrie was one, and I, I still remember to this day a, a book I read on, on Ryrie on prayer. I mean, the, you know, I'm not... I'm just trying to help us understand where we've, how we've come to where we've come, not trying to be disparaging to these men at all. But the, Rari's main argument is that God requires only that people believe in Jesus for him to be saved, and Christians may live a life of carnality. And so the idea that it, people push back saying, well, by saying that he has to be Lord of your life, they're basically making a work salvation. Uh, and so they... Uh, just in an unhealthy way, made a, a distinction between those two. Basically, what I put down here is, and we're in, well, I got a few more minutes. I put down, it created unbiblical dualism. I put down three, here's three examples. These one, two, three examples here are, here's, here's how some of this plays out in, and how people express themselves when it comes to spirituality and sanctification. Number one, these are examples of men that, that respond to this. Is that be filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you met God's conditions? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you sincerely desire to be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit? If so, I invite you to bow your head and pray this prayer of faith right now. Expect God to fill you. Without begging or pleading, just say, Dear Father, I need you. I hunger and thirst for a more vital relationship with you. And to demonstrate my faith, I now thank you for filling me with your Holy Spirit and for taking control of my life. Now, if you sincerely pray that prayer, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit. You will begin to experience a greater love for God. And you will want to spend time with Him and stand in His Word. You will want to trust and obey God in His Word. And you will want to share your love for Christ with others who do not know Him. So what the, the emphasis here is the this greater experience that you're going to gain 
by, by responding through this, this prayer. So Ephesians 5 talks about being filled with the Spirit. Uh, and it's not commanding us to search because he, he quotes Ephesians 5 in his, in his text here that I that was reading. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not commanding us to search for something we don't already have. When the Bible says be filled with the Spirit, we have the false understanding that it means taking something that is empty and filling it up rather than taking the original word, which means to be pressured by or permeated by describing the thrust of the Spirit to spiritual obedience and how the Holy Spirit permeates everything we are and do. In other words, we, we get the false understanding that being filled by the Spirit means to, to we have an empty cup and He needs to come and fill it up. And we're praying that He comes and fills that cup. Um, but in reality, it talks about being pressured by or permeated by the Spirit. Repentance without fruit. Here's another, here's another, uh, another person speaking on the subject. Does repentance involve turning from sin? Does it involve sorrow? No. This brings us to another common area of confusion. People confuse the fruit of repentance with repentance itself. Another way to think of this is salvation is turning to Jesus to be forgiven for one's sin. It's not turning from one's sin in order to be forgiven. The gospel is not dependent on your willingness to never sin again. It is dependent on what Christ has already accomplished. And you change your mind and putting your trust in that finished work. Now, again, what you're going to see is it's all intermingled with good things. You know, it's all mixed in with, with good things. But what he's saying is that, there, no, there's two separate things. You're, when you're turning to Christ, you're trusting him for salvation. We're not talking about turning from your sin. That's, that's something separate. He goes on to describe the, uh, you know, let's, let's separate the two, let's separate the two things. Again, well, as you're reading this, you can pick up some, some, some great things because he's saying, yeah, we want to, yes, I want to trust in Christ and the work he's already accomplished. But he said the, the fruit of repentance is not, in other words, the fruit and the repentance are two separate, two separate things. Here's another one on the, on, on the second blessing. And this is from a more traditional Pentecostal preacher, right? He said the Christian, the Christian life is a two-stage process. First one becomes a believer, and then at some point later in life, he experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This, this second experience, or second blessing, as I describe it here, is not always referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in each case, the Christian life is seen as a two-stage process. And so whatever you call this experience, it is a second blessing that typically comes to a Christian sometimes after, sometime after conversion. Much good has come out of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And he's a Pentecostal speaker. And he has forced the church to come to grips with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer says that the charismatic movement has rubbed our faces into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that's good. We need it. Another good thing about this theology is that it reminds us that a Christian must never grow satisfied with his life as he has arrived. He must never accept the mediocrities of his life as if they will, will never change. This impulse to seek more grace, more power from God, to seek his help is a good one. We need to have a keen grasp of the fact that the Holy Spirit is not done with his work in our lives as soon as we become Christians. And the Christian life is meant to be a dynamic one. It's not supposed to be static. It's supposed to be a life-changing one. So he goes through this, which is true. I mean, if you just read that part, you think, well, yes, I want that dynamic life. I want, to, I want that uh, spirit-filled life. I don't want to live a life of mediocrity. But what he's describing, the foundation, what he's saying is that that's why you're searching for a baptism of the spirit to invigorate your life, to fill what's empty, and to allow you to walk in, in, in light of that. So just we, we've created through this perception of... Of spirituality and perfectionism, 
an unbiblical dualism. The first, so, Tilo 7, I don't really have time to start. I really wanted to get this one, but here, here's where we're going to go next week. First, natural, carnal, and spiritual. Understand what those three terms mean to be a natural man, to be a carnal, and to be spiritual. And the, they've created, it's like at, at the revival meetings. At the revival meetings, you're, you're trying to get the saved man to get saved, and you're, or you're trying to get the carnal Christian to become a spiritual Christian. Well, that, and we create this three tier spirituality that wasn't designed to be, and we'll, we'll address some of that. The other issue we're going to address is justification and sanctification. Uh, the understanding of what those two terms mean and how they're obviously intertwined and there's not one without the, without the other. Uh, then following that, we're going to talk about the unbiblical dualism between believer and being a believer versus being a disciple. Being fruitless, fruitlessness being, versus being, being uh, fruitful. Then we'll talk about pursuing perfection. Take Matthew 5. Uh, the reality and the view of God's perfection and then holy living. St. Augustine has a beautiful definition of what perfection means, and I'll share some of that in there as well. And then pursuing hope, embracing the struggle. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting. I, I'll just share this as a glimpse to finish. I, I remember talking to a young man, discipling a young man. He was struggling because he, was, he had this struggling area of sin in his life. And it, was, it wasn't that it was something minor. It wasn't like he was enslaved or something. But he, he was a new believer and saved for about three months. Coming to our discipleship, our discipleship training. And he shared with me just how he was discouraged. Because he, he's saved now and he's, he still wants to sin. He still has the desire. He still has the imperfections. And I sat with him and said, you know, the beauty of what you're saying to me is that the beauty of it is that you have a struggle. The beauty of it is that you see these imperfections. The beauty of it is that you now know where to turn to confess and repent and walk in life and walk in this truth, in light of that truth. So what he saw as a discouragement, I saw as a blessing. Because I have many people who, come, who make a profession of Christ, but they have no guilt over sin. They have no drive to walk in truth. They have, I mean, they're, they're lifeless spiritually. Uh, I shared with you here the... Did you ever buy that book from uh, Moeller? Um, I'm waiting for you. To I, I know. I'll give it to you now that I've finished it. But uh, the, the premise of the book just addressed that this generation we're going to face the death of nominal Christianity. And I think that's a beautiful thing. The death of nominal Christianity is going to be a good thing. Because you're going to either be a believer or a disciple and you're going to take away those distinctions. You're either a disciple or you're not a believer. And so he hits some of that uh, culturally. It's not a... Uh, a theological book. It's a book on, on today's day and age, but I thought it was very helpful. So we're going to address these, these things and finish up on transformation, maturity, and growth is a beautiful thing. The sanctification process is a beautiful thing. And it's in view of perfection that is to come that will be completed in Christ. And so we'll unpack all of that, some of that next week and then in the weeks to follow. So let me close a word of prayer. Thank you for your time. I spoke quickly today. I guess with the mic, I felt like I could talk ever, over everything and just keep plowing through but I uh, appreciate you you guys being here and listening up Father we do have a desire to, to serve you fully and completely Lord we're aware as Paul did where he says he dies daily and every day he wakes up and, and dies to self and, and lives for Christ for me to live as Christ Lord and, and to die as gain so I just uh, thank you for, for your word Lord help us to uh, have our own 
pursuit of holiness, that we might understand this process of sanctification in a way that uh, sees the beauty of what you allow us to do. I mean, the beauty of growing in Christ-likeness is, is remarkable. The beauty of justification, sanctification. So, Lord, help us to have a, a renewed perspective, perhaps, on these subjects. And uh, it might give us a, a real desire to, to walk in the light of our calling. We commit this point to you, Lord. Thank you for Pastor being back from his uh, vacation time and sharing the word with us this morning. Bless his family, Lord. Thank you for the beautiful day you've given to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.